So as we mentioned at the outset, there's a very great definition of the surety of Scripture. Uh, scripture is not from human will. Notice 2 Peter 1.21. Men were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. God is the author of Scripture. Men are the vehicle by which it was penned, but God is the ultimate author. They spoke from God. They were moved by the Holy Spirit. Now, right after this, Peter gets into false prophets. And remember, in the original writing of these letters, there were no chapter breaks. The chapter breaks and the verses were added later for our own navigation purposes. So the letter has a continuity to it. Right after the authority, the sureness, the inspiration of God's word, it says, but, 2 Peter 2, 1, false prophets also arose among the people just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies. Now, that's the title of our message tonight, Destructive Heresies, taken right from verse 1. The word heresies there is a Greek word, heresis. If you're interested, it's hair, as in the hair on your head, H-A-R-H-I-H-A-I-R, as in the hair on your head, E-S-I-S, hair aces. Can everybody say it together? Hair aces. That's the word for heresy or heretic. So some of you have heard that in church history, there were heretics and heretics were kicked out of the church. One that comes to mind as I'm standing up here is a man called Arius of Alexandria. Arius of Alexandria, way back in the day, and this, is, this was actually the subject matter of the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, one of the uh, councils of the churches, uh, church history unfolded, uh, dealt with Arius of Alexandria. And what he was teaching is that Jesus was a created being. There was a time when the sun was not. That was one of his uh, sayings. There, were t- there was a time when the Son, Jesus Christ, the Son, S-O-N, was not and then came into being. That heresy way back in the 300s A.D. was picked up by guess who? The Jehovah's Witnesses. By a man named Charles Taze Russell, who simply is repeating, or he's now dead, but was taught and repeated what's called the Arian heresy, or the heresy that came from Arius, of Alexandria, teaching that Jesus Christ was the first and greatest creation of God, but not eternal God. He did teach that uh, Jesus had divine qualities or maybe even had some God-like status to him, but he was not equal with the Father. He was created. He was demoted by Arius, and this was a heresy, and the church got together and debated it, and Arius of Alexandria got booted out of the church because a heretic, the technical definition of heresies is a choice or for our purposes, it's holding a strong-willed opinion. Heresies, a heretic, is someone who holds a strong-willed opinion that denies the authority of Scripture, namely having to do with Christ and his true identity. So a heretic is someone who denies or distorts one of the essential doctrines of Christianity. A heretic is not someone who's working through 
you know, maybe a complete understanding of the Trinity and gets corrected and says, oh, maybe I was a little imprecise with that. Or maybe I had a misunderstanding. It's not someone who, you know, is in a seminary class and developing doctrine and gets corrected by a professor and says, oh, okay, I realize now, you know, I had that wrong or I misunderstood this. A heretic is someone who, despite the facts of Scripture and being confronted by truth, still holds that strong-willed opinion and will not back off of it. And specifically has to do with the central doctrine. We're not talking about the timing of the rapture. We're not talking about the mode of baptism. We're not talking about church membership or church government and how you run that. We're talking about essential doctrine. So that I was reading a commentary this week and the author said that every New Testament use of the word heresies is always a denial of the person of Jesus Christ. So think about it. If you run into a Mormon, a Jehovah's Witness, a New Ager, someone who's involved in Wicca, go down the line, Islam, world religions, Hinduism, you name it, there's always a different definition of who? Jesus Christ. They deny his deity. They redefine him. They deny salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, plus nothing. They deny the triune nature of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So this is what we're talking about. We're talking about heretics who showed up. They were false teachers who showed up among the people, just as there were false prophets in Israel. Were false prophets a problem for Israel? Oh, yes. You better believe it. They kept showing up and they would prophesy and God would say, if you have somebody who's a dreamer of dreams or claims to be a prophet and he says to you, this Deuteronomy 13 about verses one through five, let us go after other gods. Don't do it. Just because it says prophet on one's business card does not mean he's truly speaking from God. Nor does someone who holds the, term, the title pastor or stands in a pulpit necessarily mean they are teaching the word of God. Notice in 2 Peter 3, verse 16, these people, they uh, distort, uh, 16 into the verse, they distort as they do the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. And then verse 18 is the theme verse we've already mentioned but we're to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The way that you can sniff out a heretic, if you will, is continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Knowing is growing. Growing is knowing. The more you know, the more you grow. The more you know, the more you will not be duped by false teachers. Who, By the way, preach more heresy than you could shake a stick at with a Bible in front of them. Just because they have a Bible in front of them does not mean that they are accurately teaching God's word. And so you have to be able to know the truth and then test all things and hold fast to that which is good. So these false prophets arose among the people, the people of Israel, I think is Peter's meaning here in verse one. And there will be false teachers among you. Notice how they will do this. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies. They will do it stealthily. They won't come out and say, hey, I'm about to teach something that's not historic Christian doctrine. That's not how they're going to do it. They're going to come into what? 
Where have most false teachers made their greatest destructive impact? Within the church, not without. Within the church. They stealthily sneak in, maybe saying, oh, sure, I believe that same thing. And then they start a Bible study, and now you have division in a church. Some years ago, I had a friend that was a pastor. We did a radio program on KKLA together. And he told me that a young man came into their church and he was an extreme Calvinist. And there's some uh, wonderful Calvinist believers, but this guy was very extreme. And he began to divide the church. He started in a little Bible study and he began to basically say the pastor's wrong about this, the pastor's wrong about that. And he began to try to use his little hobby horse passages to make his point. And he ended up dividing the church. And the church was, was hurt by it because people began to jump on this guy's bandwagon. And unfortunately, they had not done their homework on you know, all of the different angles by which you have to weigh a doctrine like this. And so there's a lot of modern examples of how this works. And They will bring in secretly their destructive. I want you to see the nature of their heresies. They are destructive. How so? They are destructive to who? Well, you could say they're destructive to the heretic because if he keeps doing it, and we would argue here that these heretics are not Christians. They've denied Jesus, which we'll see in a moment. They've denied the master who bought them. But they're destructive to the people. Because if a heretic moves you away from the true Christ, what do you have left? Nothing. Because only Jesus Christ can save you. Turn to the book of Acts for a second. Peter has been uh, filled with the Holy Spirit. Book of Acts, chapter 4. He is a different man. He has been restored into ministry. He's been told that he's going to go and preach and He's to shepherd the sheep. Uh, This is the book of Acts chapter four. Look at verse eight. Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. They were being confronted by the religious leadership not to speak anymore in the name of Jesus. Acts 4, eight, Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. Said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be made known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He, Jesus, is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the very cornerstone. And there is salvation in, what's your Bible say? No one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. There is salvation in no one else. So if a heretic comes in and points people as the false prophets did in Israel, let us go after other gods. And let's say that the heretic says, there's another Jesus. You can redefine Jesus in this way. And they detract from the beauty of his person and the exclusivity of who he is. He's the one way to God. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man is coming to the Father. No person's coming to the Father except through me. If someone is distorting or denying that, think about it. Think about all the modern movements that deny that Jesus is the singular way to God. Isn't that the the issue of our culture today, that if you were to gather at 
some sort of uh, gathering where everybody just says, whatever you believe, it's all fine. All roads lead to God. Then, we're all, then we can sing Kumbaya together and we're, we're all cool. But the moment that you say you're a Christian, what have you just made? You've just made an exclusive claim. Why? Because your Lord made an exclusive claim. When people say to me, you know, Michael, that's just your opinion. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, only way to God. I say, no, that's not my opinion, sir or ma'am. That's what Jesus said. So now you have to wrestle with what Jesus said. And Jesus did warn us in Matthew 7 that there were going to be people that would come about and they would be wolves in sheep's clothing and they would lead people astray. So there are going to be false teachers among you. They'll bring destructive heresies. Look at verse 1. They'll even be denying. That means to contradict, disavow, or reject. We're back in 2 Peter 2.1. I'm sorry, 2 Peter 2.1. They will even be denying the master who bought them. And they will be bringing swift or imminent destruction upon themselves. Back to 2 Peter 2.1. They will deny the master who bought them. Now, there, this brings up a couple of questions. Did Jesus buy everyone, even people who deny him, which is what verse 1 says? Did Jesus die for everyone? 1 John 2.2 2 is a verse you want to write down. Jesus died for our sins, but not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. That's 1 John 2.2. 2. His atoning death on the cross is sufficient payment for the sins of the entire world. There's no additional payment that needs to be made. He doesn't have to add to his payment. His death is wholly sufficient to pay for everyone's sin. And that includes everyone. However, not everyone applies the purchase price that's been made. So while his death is sufficient, not everybody applies the payment. When Jesus from the cross said, it is finished, you guys have heard this before. Another way to say that is paid, what? In full. There's nothing more that needs to be added to the sufficiency of the atonement of Christ. It's a full payment for everyone's sin. Anybody who wants to jump on the ark of salvation can jump on. The ticket's been punched. However, if you don't take the ticket, no ticky, no washy. I don't even know where that comes from. Anybody? <laughs> anyway, I think it's like the cleaners or something like that. You don't have your ticket, you don't pick up your sport jacket. So if you don't want to receive the gift for salvation is by grace, through faith. Grace, you could say, is God's unmerited favor. So Christ's atoning death, we could place there, right? It's by grace, God has done it all. Through the channel of what? Faith. So the way that you receive Christ's atonement is you must trust him for your salvation. If you don't trust him for your salvation, then the payment is not applied to you. It's not credited to your account. Some of the other language in the New Testament is uh, accounting language. And it's the idea of imputation. This is, you could read Romans 4, pretty much the whole chapter, but especially the first like eight verses. And in Romans 4, it talks about imputed righteousness. So think about it this way. When does Christ's righteousness go to your account to be credited to you? 
The moment you what? Believe. The moment you exercise faith. Abraham believed God. This is Romans 4, 3, quoting Genesis 15, 6. And it was reckoned to him, credited to him as what? Righteousness. That's way before the cross, you guys. That's the first, that's the guy that God chose to start the nation of Israel. And what did Abraham believe? He believed God's word. He believed that uh, a child was coming, an heir. He didn't understand everything. He, he wasn't able to look back like we look back right now. But Abraham was made righteous by faith. And so this is the, the truth of the matter. If you want to read more about false prophets, write down Jeremiah 23, uh, verses 14 through 32. And Jeremiah 6, verses 13 through 14, and you'll get a whole treatise on the false prophets who dream dreams. They say they're speaking in the name of the Lord. They say, peace, peace, when there is what? No peace. And so they deny the one who purchased them. Now, there's an interesting verse in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 32. So you got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Go to Deuteronomy 32. Moses is... Addressing the children of Israel, they've been uh, led out of bondage by the powerful hand of God. He's their redeemer, so he bought them out of the slave market of sin. Deuteronomy 32. God purchased Israel, but they would what? They largely did not obey God. They were redeemed by the mighty hand of God, purchased. But how well did they obey the Lord? What kind of grade would you give Israel in the wilderness. A D minus? <laughs> Did they flunk? We know that only two men entered the promised land. Not even Moses got to go in. And here's what Moses says. He says, Deuteronomy 32, 1, Give ear, O heavens, let me speak. Let the earth hear the words of my mouth. Let my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, as the droplets on the fresh grass and as the showers on the herb. For I proclaim the name of the Lord. Ascribe greatness to our God, 32.4. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. They have acted corruptly toward him. They are not his children because they're of their defect, but are a perverse and crooked generation. Do you thus repay the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is not he your father who has what? who bought you, he has made you and established you. Remember the days of old. Consider the years of all generations. Ask your father and he will inform you, your elders and they will tell you. Israel was foolish. In the desert, they acted like God had not bought them. Turn back to 2 Peter 2. And so Korah had a rebellion and uh, he tried to lead a rebellion against Moses and the ground opened up and swallowed Korah and his family. And prior to that, Moses said, who's ever on the Lord's side, come over to me. Whoever is on Korah's side, you can stay over there. And if you began to hear the ground crack a little bit, wouldn't you? <laughs> Moses' side, Moses' side, right? And down they went, basically into the abyss. Ah! Hollywood should make the movie one day if they haven't already. Second Peter 2, 1. Two, two. And many, this swift destruction of the false teachers 
their denial of Jesus. It says, and many, 2 Peter 2, 2, will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. Now, this is back in the time of Peter, right? And Peter says, of these false teachers, many are going to follow them. Does that just make you a little bit sad? Many? Go to Matthew 7. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew 7, Jesus warned about this very thing in Matthew 7. We're going to pick it up in verse 13. And there's some sobering language that we need to hear from Jesus. And the context is warning about false teachers. So here's what he says. This is Matthew 7, 13. He says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And many are those who enter by it. Matthew 7, 14. The gate is small, the way is narrow that leads to life, and few are those who find it. Beware of what? Of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit. Think of uh, a good teacher, false teachers, and positive teachers, right-on teachers. Nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down. It's going to be judged and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Now keep reading. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, Master, Master, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not, and they did a bunch of religious things. They prophesied. They said, we, didn't we prophesy in your name? Cast out demons in your name, perform many miracles. And then I will declare to them, and this is important for you to see. I, he doesn't say I knew you at one time and our relationship drifted. He says, I, what? Never knew you. You were never of me. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now keep that phrase in mind of the practice of lawlessness as you go back to 2 Peter 2. Many people are enthralled by false teachers and one of the things that we can see from this false teaching in 2 Peter is that these were those who were following something called anti-antinomianism. Simply put, it means no law. And there were two kind of extreme heresies that developed into something called Gnostic thought in the second century is where it really developed. One group said you can... Uh, pretty much do whatever you want and still be spiritual and still be good with God. They practiced antinomianism. And then the other group was kind of a group that beat themselves up and said, you're only acceptable to God if you just, you know, tar and feather yourself, basically whip yourself, beat yourself up. So it would seem that these false teachers came into the church with an antinomianism uh, perspective. It says, many will follow, this is why we think this, many will follow their sensuality. See the word sensuality there? That's a Greek word that speaks of unbridled lust, excess, licentiousness, outrageous behavior, shamelessness, insolence. 
Many will follow their sensuality. These are people who, under the uh, banner of religion, manipulate and hurt a bunch of people. How many people, just step back for a second and just think with me, how many people have been wounded by religion? Manipulated by it. Would you say that there's a lot of people who, you know, they, they entered into a cult and they got totally manipulated. Have you ever watched, you know, Saturday Night, those 2020 specials and what a so-called cult leader did to people and stole their wives away? And, you know, sometimes some of these ended up with uh, the officials and a gun battle. And it's just, it's just crazy. And, and if you know, remember Jonestown, people drank the Kool-Aid and some people didn't want to drink the Kool-Aid, but they had guns pointed at them. So they had to drink the Kool-Aid. They were going to die either way. And so many will follow their sensuality because people love easy religion. I don't want something that's going to be hard and challenging. If I can do whatever I want and still have my tiki into heavy, heaven, then I'm good with that, right? So people will, they'll go for that. Oh, you, you don't have to keep all that stuff. You're, you're fine, right? So people buy into this because people love to have their ears. Oh, yeah, tickle it. Go ahead. Tell me lies. Tell me sweet little lies. Tell me what I want to hear. And it's, it's convenient for people, but it's not true. And so many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way, oftentimes Christianity has been called the way, especially that was the early uh, name for the Christian faith was the way. The way of the truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. John 14, 6. It will be maligned. See that word maligned there in the New American Standard? It's the word blasphemeo in Greek, and it's just like it sounds. The way of the truth will be blasphemed. Here, now think about it. Just, just this, this is a modern application. Oh, you say you're a Christian. I saw you, man. You, you live like the devil. But you go to that church on Sunday, don't you? And it gives the watching world reason to what? Blaspheme. To malign the truth. To think it's a joke. That it doesn't really, your life isn't any different than anybody else's. You claim this Christian stuff, but look at you, right? David was told in 2 Samuel 12, 14 that he had given the enemies of God reason to blaspheme. You can write down also Romans 2, 24. It's the same idea. In Titus 1, 16, it says, they profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable, disobedient, and worthless for any good deed. They profess to know God, listen, but by their words they, or excuse me, by their deeds they deny him. You will know someone by their what? Their fruits. Now, no Christian walking around is perfect. We all know that. But a Christian ought to be fruit bearing. Would you agree? There, there are certain things that the Lord wants us to do. He wants us to grow so that we can have a living testimony. Here's the motivation of the false teachers. And in their greed, 2 Peter 2, 3, in their greed, they will exploit you 
with false words. Greed is their motivation. I know that this is shocking to most of you tonight. That greed would be a motivator for someone to pull the wool over the sheep's eyes, as it were, get a big movement going for the sake of money, not for the sake of the glory of God. Shocking, isn't it? No. (laughs) Because we can see, even in many modern examples, which I could name, name after name, and I won't do it tonight, but I could name the names tonight and you would immediately know who I'm talking about. And there's a question mark hanging over their ministry. Why? Because there are gobs of money coming in with very little to no accountability. And so it becomes about planes and it becomes about expensive suits and $10,000 a night hotel rooms. And I'm not joking when I say $10,000 a night hotel rooms on ministry money. Now, it is true that a workman is worthy of his wages. And it's not a matter of that a man in the ministry ought not to be taken care of. But we're talking about someone who is full of greed. If you write down Luke 16, 14, Jesus uh, is going to address the Pharisees there. And he's going to tell the story about the rich man and Lazarus. And it says in Luke 16, 14, that the Pharisees were lovers of money. The rich young ruler would not follow Jesus because he had what? Many possessions. And in 1 Timothy 6, it says that there are people who want to get rich. And 1 Timothy is a pastoral epistle. I'll tell you what, turn over there because it's, it's worth looking at. 1 Timothy 6, a few pages back. 1 Timothy 6, remember the pastoral epistles of 1 and 2 Timothy and uh, Titus address uh, primarily the, the main audience is those who are going to be in the ministry and then ways that you can judge that. In 1 Timothy 6, uh, this is, let's go back to verse 6. It says, godliness, 1 Timothy 6, 6, actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we've brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. But those, 1 Timothy 6, 9, who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. Think of what Peter said about their destruction. For not money, but the love of money. Money is neutral. Money is a means of, you know, buying things and it's just something for exchange. It's not money. It's the love of money that is the root, a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it, for money, have what? They have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang, many griefs. But by contrast to those, Paul says to Timothy, but flee from these things you, Timothy, man of God, and pursue instead of those things righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Greed is their motivation. Turn back to 2 Peter. Micah 3.11. Micah 3.11 says, Her leaders pronounce judgment for a bribe. Her priests instruct for a price. Her prophets divine for money. Yet they lean on the Lord, saying, Is not the Lord in our midst? Certainly no calamity will come upon us. But they're ripping the people off, and they're doing everything for money. So in their greed, they will exploit you. It means they will 
If you have a King James, it says they will make merchandise of you. They will traffic with you, deal with you. They will exploit you with false words. The Greek word for false words here is plastos, where we get the word plastic. They will uh, exploit you with plastic words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. They are going to be judged. It just hasn't happened yet because the Lord is patient. Flip over to the next chapter to your right. The Lord, 2 Peter 3, 9, is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient toward you, 2 Peter 3, 9, not wishing for any to perish, but for what? All to come to repentance. Their judgment, you know, sometimes do you watch these guys and you see them, it's, it's obvious to you that they're ripping off the whole bunch of them. And you think, Lord, when are you going to zap that individual with lightning? <laughs> and the answer is, God is waiting for repentance because God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. None. Ezekiel thirty-three eleven, None. So he waits. But if a man continues to represent Jesus Christ in quotes, he says he's a Christian teacher, and yet he is making merchandise of God's people. The judgment of God is hanging over him. It's not asleep. It's not even blinking. You could define the language this way. It's just, it's going to come in God's time. And so he needs to repent of what he's been doing. Even a false teacher can repent and God would have him to do that. Now, just in case we needed a little bit of affirmation as to the fact that God does judge wayward individuals, especially when it comes to this leading people into sensuality and lust. He says he's going to give three Old Testament examples, and we could argue all three are from the book of Genesis. Example number one is angels. For if or since God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, this is the word Tartarus, T-A-R-T-A-R, O-S or U-S, Tartarus. I think it's the only place it's used in the New Testament. And in the Greek mind, this was the abode of the wicked dead, including gods with a small g and demons. It was the deepest, darkest, gloomiest place of judgment. Peter uses the word. He says, if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, Tartarus, and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. Uh, he didn't spare angels. Which angels are these? Well, we do know that there is such a thing as fallen angels. And we would say that fallen angels are demons. How many angels are there? How many fallen angels are there? We don't know for sure. But there's perhaps millions. Some even think billions. And they fell along with Lucifer or Satan and now there's this demonic activity. Back in Genesis chapter 6, in a debated passage, if you want to hear me go through all the views, uh, I did it. It's on our website. You can go back and look at that message. One view of these angels is that these are the ones, they're called sons of God, who saw the daughters of men. And this is where... This, this is one view, and some people have issues with this, this view, but they believe they inhabited uh, 
possessed bodies of people and cohabited with women. One motivation that some scholars believe is for the purpose of defiling the human race, kind of a tactic of Satan to keep the, to de, dilute the human race or destroy the human race to keep the Messiah from coming. That's predicted in Genesis 3. It's one view. But it's really that they looked on these women with lust. They saw that they were beautiful. They lusted after them. And they, they left their proper abode. Write down, um, just so you can go back and check this, Genesis 6, especially verses 1 and 2. Now, Jude comments on this. This is a little bit to your right, right before Revelation. You got the book of Jude and then Revelation. So a, little, a few pages to your right. Jude and 2 Peter are very close in their content. And here's what Jude says about this group that God did not spare. He says, in Jude is only one chapter, verse five. Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. Jude, verse six. And angels, that's our discussion point for this example, who did not keep their own domain, Greek word arcane, their own source, their own origin, where they belonged, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under, the, under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Just as, in the same way, if you will, Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, in the same way as, verse 6, the angels, as these indulged in what? Gross immorality. They went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment, scary, of eternal fire. So you say, well, what's the purpose of Peter's example? Simply this. If God did not hesitate to judge angels when they got off track and got into sensuality and did an abominable deed, will God not judge false teachers too? Answer, yes. But he hasn't done it yet, somebody might say. Oh, that doesn't mean the judgment isn't on his calendar. It just means that he hasn't done it yet. But the day is coming. And let's say that the false teacher never repents and, and he lives to 105 and he dies. He's still going to stand before God. And James 3.1 says, let not many of you be teachers, for we will incur what? The stricter judgment. So I am often surprised at how people can callously step into a pulpit, have before them the inspired word of God and twist the scriptures for their own personal gain. Um, it's a scary proposition, no doubt. First example was angels. Second example is the ancient world. Angels in the ancient world. Example number two is also from Genesis, starting in verse six. God did not spare 2 Peter 2, 5, the ancient world. What did he do? He preserved Noah. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. And how many people got on the boat with Noah? Well, there was only seven, and they were family members. When he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Now think with me. In Genesis 6, 5, you don't have to turn there, but I think you all know it. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And God was sorry 
vexed, hurt that he had made man. Because man now took every intent of the thought of his heart. And here's the, the Hebrew word is the word for shaping pottery. He was able to take thoughts in and reshape them into wickedness. And God looked and said, everything they think about is evil, wrong, terrible. In fact, Genesis 6, 11 says the earth was filled with violence, violence everywhere. Pastor Chris prayed, but it's worth mentioning another school shooting in Florida. 14 wounded. Uh, last I heard, numerous fatalities. How many is it? 17 wounded and 17 dead. And, you know, what was the last one was in Kentucky. It was another school. And are you losing count? And sadly, are we becoming a little calloused? Because it's happening so much. And Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be at the coming of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking, given in marriage. They were going about their normal daily life until the day that Noah entered the ark. And God gave mankind 120 years to repent. Life, that's not lifespan there because people lived more than 120 years after that. It's 120 years to repent. Three times 40, by the way. 40 is the number of testing. And God gave them three times the normal amount. The wilderness wandering was 40 years. He gave them a buck 20, 120 to repent. And then the flood came. And how many converts did, you know, you know he was probably leading all the talk shows. Nutty Noah's at it again. Click, 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 click. Repent. The flood's coming. The flood's coming. Ha, ha, ha. Oh, yeah, old man. It doesn't even rain around. Now, I'm not making this up. There's actually extra biblical literature that says this is probably what people were saying to Noah. What are you doing, old man? Building a boat, huh? <laughs> News at 11. Nutty Noah's at it again. Look, there he is again. And he tapped and he preached. And with each stroke of the hammer, do you think some people walked by and went, not even, not even, I wonder if someday you're going to need that boat. You know how people are when they get with their friends. They love to mock Christians and Christianity, right? Yeah, they're a Christian, they're a Christian. And then they go home. Sometimes they get in trouble and they call the Christian. They want to know why it is you live the way you live. And Noah, verse 5, was a preacher. He wasn't just a boat builder. He was a preacher. He preached righteousness. And when the flood came, God shut the door. And only Noah's family was saved. The ark became a picture of Jesus Christ. He is our ark. By faith, Noah, Hebrews eleven seven, being warned by God about things not yet seen in reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household by which he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness. 
which is according to faith. You can write down Hebrews eleven seven. Flip back one book to 1 Peter 3. 1 Peter 3, subject matter similar. 1 Peter 3, verse 18 says, 1 Peter 3, 18, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. 1 Peter 3, 19. In which also he went and made proclamation. The Greek word is caruso. It means to herald something. It can mean preaching, but it doesn't have to. He made proclamation to the spirits who are what? Now in prison, probably the same group. Uh, it's debated, but it's a pretty good argument. Who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of who? Noah. During the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, seven plus Noah's eight, were brought safely through the water. And corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Keep reading. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected, subjected to him. When it says he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, that's probably a proclamation of his victory over these demonic spirits in this place called Tartarus. That's one major view. Seems to fit well with the evidence. So you have 2 Peter 2, as we'll finish it up. You have the example of the angels who left their proper abode. You have the example of the flood. And we'll see in chapter 3 that the false teachers seem to be the mockers who deny uh, the second coming of Jesus Christ and the cataclysmic judgment of the flood. So you have in verse five, uh, verse four is the angels. Verse five, God did not spare the old or ancient world. He preserved Noah, but he brought the flood. Jesus believed in the flood. And then the third example, also from Genesis chapter 19. And if or since God condemned the cities of what? Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly thereafter. And if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the, what, what's your Bible say? Sensual conduct. Go back to verse two. The false teachers are leading people into sensuality. Uh, what was happening in Sodom and Gomorrah is uh, the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. So God did not spare those cities. The stench of their sin came up to God. And God showed up in Genesis 18. You have the angel of the Lord and two angels. We believe it's Jesus with two angels, the Lord with two angels. And he said, shall I tell Abram, Abraham what I'm about to do? I think it was a rhetorical question. He knew what he was going to do, right? And so Abraham begins to barter with God. Hey, if, I don't think he said hey. Lord, if there's 50 righteous people in that city, will you spare the city? And then he kept going down, right, by increments. If there's 10, spare the city for 10. There wasn't 10. Basically just Lot and his family. And God rained fire and brimstone down on that area and Lot had to be pulled out by the angels. Kind of a picture of the rapture before the judgment. And Jesus says, remember Lot's wife because she looked back. 
And did she look back and get turned into salt? Is that the deal? Or in stopping, did she get consumed in the fire of the judgment? That's a possible interpretation. By the way, that area of the world is known to the Jews as the Sea of Salt. You go into what's called, we know as the Dead Sea, something like 35% mineral content. You walk in there, it looks like a normal ocean. You walk in there and all of a sudden it's gooey and ooey and you're like, whoa. And if you took a newspaper and you laid back in the Sea of Salt, you will float and you can read the sports section in Israel in the Sea of Salt with no floaties. It's awesome. However, you can only stay in the Sea of Salt for about 15 minutes. If you stay the proper time, you will come out and your skin will be like a baby's skin because they sell Dead Sea products all over the world. Put on that little mud thing. <laughs> but if you stay too long, it will suck the life right out of you. And I'm not kidding around. You don't fall asleep there. There's only a certain amount of time you can stay there. And th how many of you are going to Israel who are here tonight? You've been? Did you float in the Sea of Salt? It's pretty cool, huh? Do you have some big goggles on or anything? No? <laughs> anyway. And so Sodom and Gomorrah, the third example. Why did God judge them? Now, I know that there, there is a verse in the Old Testament about their inhospitality, but that's not what these verses teach. The reason God judged Sodom and Gomorrah is quite clear, though unpopular to the modern culture. It was homosexual behavior, and it was unnatural and against nature. You can read Romans 1, verses 18 through 32, and God took a very dim view of it, and I, I would say, again, it's another example of giving a space to repent and, and waiting and waiting, and God was patient. And what was Lot doing there? Well, Lot was attracted to the land and its beauty and so forth, and he had settled. And here's the thing about settling. Maybe Lot was strong enough to deal with it. It does say, if you look at the verses here, it says that he was a righteous man, verse 8, uh, verse Seven, he was rescued, but he was oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. By what he saw and heard, the righteous man was tormented, look at, day after day with their lawless deeds. I mean, Lot walked around, according to Peter's commentary, and said, this, this is terrible. It vexed him. It hurt him. He walked around and it, it was tormenting to his soul. I don't think that inhospitality was tormenting him. I think there was a ton of sexual sin, probably every kind of debauchery you could think of in that city, even to the degree that the story says that the men of the town tried to get to the two angels and sleep with them, and then they were blinded. Day after day, he was tormented by their lawless deeds. Final verse for tonight. After those three examples... And you might say, well, what's the point? I mean, why is Peter bringing this up? Because he's dealing with a church that has to discern and weed out and deal with what? False teachers. He says, look, this has been around for a long time. 
These kinds of things have been around. And the Lord knows how to deal with those things. And the Lord, verse nine, final verse, knows how to rescue the godly from what? From temptation. What temptation do you think that the people Peter addresses were facing? To give in. To go with the flow. Maybe these guys are right. Maybe, maybe, maybe our views are a little archaic. Do you know that much Many of the old line denominations that you would know the names of these churches are gone. Here's what I mean. They're bankrupt. There are segments of the Methodist church today that are bankrupt. And you, do you know how they got there? Do you know why they're caving on moral issues of our day? Because years ago, and I'm talking about 75, 100 years ago in some cases, they started to think, they started to teach that the Bible's not inerrant. They started to give in on essential historic doctrine. And so you give in on those things and then you're going to give in on other things because you don't want to have to deal with the pressure. He says, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation. Temptation to give in, go with the flow. And to keep the unrighteous under punishment for what? For the day of judgment. The Lord's not slow about his promise. He's, there's a day of the Lord coming. It's in 2 Peter 3.10. For the world, it will come like a thief in which the heavens, flip over to 2 Peter 3.10, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar. The elements will be destroyed with intense heat. The earth and its works will be burned up since all these things are to be destroyed in this way. What sort of people ought you to be? and holy conduct and godliness. Look, I know it's not easy to be a Christian. It's not easy. And the more you walk with the Lord, I think the more you see how holy he is and what he wants from his people. I think it may have been Spurgeon who said, the closer I get to God, the more unholy I realize I am. That's me. And so... There's no perfect people in the room tonight, but, but God has called us to godliness. And godliness is really a God-centered life. Would you bow your heart with me? A God-dominated life. Father, help us. Because we don't always act like godly people, feel like godly people. And sometimes, Lord, I think if everybody was honest tonight, sometimes waving the white flag seems so much easier. In a culture like this, that mocks Christianity where there's violence and sexual sin rampant. It's hard to swim against the tide. And I think that's precisely why Peter wrote 2 Peter to remind the church to hang in there because what we're living for is not the temporary uh, time on this planet. What we're living for is eternal and it's secure and we we need to keep fighting the good fight of faith by faith and by your grace, Lord. So would you encourage your church tonight? Would you strengthen them? Would you bless them? Would you remind them of your ever-present grace to help in time of need? You're doing the changes in our lives, Lord. That's the awesome news is we're just surrendering a little bit more each day and you're changing us. And when we make a mistake or we slip up, thank you for your grace, but help us to keep moving forward Help us 
to realize that people, even who follow this kind of stuff, end up empty and bankrupt. And let us be a safe harbor for people who may have gone this way. Uh, People who may have been duped by a false teacher, hurt, wounded. Uh, Someone told me in a meeting recently that there's a ton of listeners to Christian radio who have been hurt and aren't planning on going back to a church, but they're Christians and their church is the radio. Let us be a safe haven for those people as well, Lord, uh, to show the love of Jesus and to be a beacon of light. Thank you for the precious group tonight on this Valentine's night, Lord. May you bless them. I know many that are here tonight have, they've had to say see you later to their spouse, but I pray that you would be their Valentine tonight. I pray that you would be their love, their strength until you do a new work or whatever you're going to do in their life, Lord, that you'd be their husband, their wife, whatever they need tonight. And for those who are married and have a spouse that they can bless tonight, bring a flower, chocolates, um, whatever it is tonight, most of all, just the love that uh, they have for each other. May you bless marriages tonight. Keep them strong, Lord, and We just thank you for your love for us in Jesus' name. Amen.